Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful day, wonderful blessing it is to come and gather and worship and sing, celebrate what you have accomplished for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in us, changing our wills, enabling us and empowering us to obey your truth, your word. And Lord, I pray that those who don't know you, this very thing will happen to them. You will make them contrite and broken over their sin. Call them to salvation today to ready themselves for your return. And as we look at Jesus' words, readying his own followers, Lord, speak to us, ready our own hearts as we prepare for either death or your return. Help us this, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, we are so privileged to gather and study the Word of God together. I was listening to a sermon this week on 1 Corinthians 1.21. You know, or at least familiar with this. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It always amazes me, and certainly it is a testimony of the power of God that folks would gather simply for the study of His Word, such thirst for the Word that you would gather and come and study and spend hours after hour. Uh, as Pastor Ryan said earlier, I was uh, very, very encouraged, pleasantly encouraged by both the men and women who came. I think we had probably 50 or 60 people here yesterday morning, and all of it was around this idea of studying and knowing the Word of God, applying it to our lives. So it was a blessing, and it continues to be a blessing this morning. The only explanation for that is God's done something on your heart, drawn you to Himself. We pray that He does this. For those who aren't believers, but to us again and again. So let's not squander our time. I'm blessed to be with you today. Open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Today we enter this longer portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives. No, this is not the Sermon on the Mount. If you're with us, that was earlier. That was early in Jesus' ministry up in Galilee. This is a sermon that he preached on the Mount of Olives. That's often called the Olivet Discourse. This is the sermon where Jesus notably addressed the future. Verse 28 verses were the immediate future for the disciples there. And of course, that becomes emblematic of the church age. And then he addressed what would happen at the end of the age at his return, which is future for us as well. And he would return in a time or a moment no one knows. And what was Jesus' point on in doing all this? Was it to give them an exact, precise, historical timeline so that they could know the precise day and hour of His return? No. He told them no one knows. Was it to give them some stuff to argue about? Of course not. All that He said was to bring them greater harmony. Then why? Why did He give this? Well, here it is, to ready their hearts for His return. It was to ready their hearts for His 
return. He wanted them to live, even though they were going to die before his return, he wanted them to live lives, live their lives as though he could return and would return at any moment. This is applicable to us today, of course. This would ready our own hearts. And we would find maturity and unity and growth and hope and victory over sin and joy and community by readying our hearts spiritually for His return. Listen to some of the language throughout this, the Olivet Discourse. He says, be careful, verse 4, be aware, not alarmed, verse 6, stay awake, verse 42 of chapter 24, be ready, verse 44. In chapter 25, he said, be wise, verse 2. He said, be ready, verse 10. He said, watch, verse 13. Some of your translations say, be on the alert. Be faithful, verse 23. If you get all bogged down and trying to interpret signs and come up with some sort of precise or precision in terms of date and trying to parallel everything you see here with something that's happening in history, you, ironically, will not be ready for His return because to be ready for His return, you're focused on these things. You're focused on the character and the heart of spiritual readiness. The point is spiritual readiness. And this point can be illustrated further by the fact that more than half of his Olivet Discourse, more than half of his sermon, was given to four illustrations, four parables, all pointing us to spiritual readiness. That's why I'm entitling this message and the following three messages, Spiritual Readiness in Four Parables. Four parables that demonstrate here for us the utter necessity it is to ready ourselves for the return of Christ. This part of Jesus' sermon warms the cockles of my heart. Why? Because I need it. Lord, teach me to grow. Teach me to be ready. I don't want to be found not ready when you return. You, pastor, you say, Pastor, I came to church and I, I'm not wanting to learn about maturity and growth and all that stuff. I feel like I know what I need to know. I, I came to church and I need comfort and something that's not challenged. Well, Perfect. The disciples had just been told they were going to die and suffer. Jesus gave them exactly what they needed to hear. You say, I need marriage advice. I need parenting tips. Well, it all begins with the person who you are, which Jesus addresses here extensively right here. Now, let me give you a little preview, and then I'm going to read our passage for today. That first parable that we're going to study together this morning end of chapter 24, that's the first parable. It's sometimes called the parable of the householder. Back in those days, a wealthy man or a wealthy king would have a slave, and it's always important to remember in that day and age, uh, slavery was much broader than what we often think of slavery. Uh, we often think of it as it pertains to our own history here in America, here in Hawaii. And yes, on one end, it did include that horrifying, terrible abuse but it also included what we might consider something more like uh, residency or internship or simply uh, employment. A householder, in this case, is called a servant or a slave, but he is acting almost like a manager or a CFO by the end of the parable. Well, what does the parable of the householder teach us? It teaches us to pursue integrity. That's what this is all about, and we'll get to that here in a moment. The second parable is the parable of the ten virgins. That's the beginning of chapter 25. The parable of the ten virgins, that parable, we will discover, teaches about authenticity. There were those who 
sought to just get sucked in by the excitement, posing as though they were part of the wedding party. They were the ultimate or the original wedding crashers. The third parable is the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents teaches, of course, the vital lesson of stewardship. What God gives you in this earth, uh, while on this earth, He expects a level of responsibility with the things that He blesses us with. And then the fourth parable, the final parable, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. It teaches, teaches us about charity, how we treat others. So integrity, authenticity, responsibility, and charity. These are the objectives here in readying ourselves for the return of Christ. Let's, as a church, pursue these things together. Let's dedicate our hearts the next few weeks as we study this and be found at His return tending to these noble endeavors. All right, let me read to you this first parable, the parable of the householder found there in verse, at the end of 24, in uh, beginning of verse 44. Really, 44 is the end of the prior section, but I wanted to include it to remind us of the purpose here. Matthew 24, verse 44, follow along. As I read aloud. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks, drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." This is the Word of God. Jesus, in His teaching, was not concerned with the abstract. What I mean by that is He always spoke to what His audience needed. He was applicational, to use a word that we use often. Now, this is not to say that Jesus was, quote, relevant and engaging, unquote, we use those words today to talk about preaching. Relevant usually talks about a pastor who speaks to what people want to hear. Whenever I get a flyer in the mail of some new church, it seems like there's one every weekend being planted in Kapolei. There's a new church all the time, and there's always that phrase, the sermons are relevant and engaging. And that is to say, we're going to give you what you want to hear. Come to our church. We're relevant and engaging. Now, Jesus is not interested in what people want to hear in His sermons. He did meet felt needs when it came to healing people, but when He preached, He was focused on what they needed. They actually needed, not what they thought that they needed, not what they felt that they needed. He was not focused on their desires. He was not focused on their wants. He was focused on their genuine spiritual needs. Now, you know this about yourself. You know that sometimes what you need and what you want is vastly different. You remember this as a young child when you sat there at the table all alone, everybody was done, and a cold plate of broccoli in front of you. What you need and what you want can be vastly different. The argument could be made as you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly the preaching, that Jesus 
had these huge crowds, they came to him because of what they wanted. They wanted their desires to be filled. But when he gave them what they needed, the preaching of the word, they fled. They ran away, and eventually they killed him for preaching about what they needed. Now, in his sermon here about the future, Jesus was not interested in just simply filling their heads with bizarre details about the future. He was indeed giving them something that they needed to hear, whether they liked it or not. What they needed to do was to fight against sin, was to fight against immaturity, to fight against complacency, to fight against selfishness, to fight against all these temptations of their hearts, especially in light of what he just said about the end of time. In fact, I wrote down some temptations that they and we too might face as we think about Jesus' words about the future, His promises about the future. I think one temptation might be the simple temptation of hedonism. Hedonism is just the pursuit of self, the pursuit of gratification of human desires. You hear about all this terror, hear about all the hardship, even think that, well, I've, I've got a relationship with God, so my future is secure, I'm, I'm solid now, and there's all this hardship coming, why not just live a life that blesses myself? Why not just live for myself? If I know the end is coming, if I know the end is near, why not just live a life of indulgence? Live focused on the satisfaction of my own personal desires. Now, this is not unique to our generation, but it does seem to be more prominent. The idea that if you make any kind of sacrifice, if you do anything for God or for the kingdom or for even for other people, you, you then feel like you have this right to reciprocate yourself for doing something good. You deserve somehow to bless yourself. You hear this phrase all the time, I owe myself. You know, that is logical nonsense. Just like you can't borrow from yourself. You cannot owe yourself anything. It's one thing to say, you know what, I, I, I've been working hard. I want to follow what Scripture says about rest and rejuvenation. As long as that's Godward, as long as that aimed at God and growing with God and resting in God, that's great. But let's be honest, a lot of times when we do that, a lot of times when we focus on these kind of things, it's not Godward, it's selfward. It's selfish. And selfish activity is always wrong. It's a form of hedonism. Well, is this temptation common? You better believe it. And Jesus addresses it here in these applications. Another temptation I wrote down here was the temptation of hypocrisy. There are many people, I talk to them all the time, they believe that since they're just around church, they're around Christianity, perhaps they grew up in a Christian home, nominally Christian environment, they attend once in a while, they throw a few bucks at the church or at ministry here and there, I think somehow that they're just going to get swept up in the excitement of heaven at the end. I'm just around this and all this excitement and we're all going to go to heaven together. We're all doing this sort of churchy stuff and Christian stuff. And I call myself a Christian and people around me are Christian. And I, I certainly acknowledge all these things. Surely in the end that I'll just get sort of swept up in all the excitement and joy of everyone going to heaven. There's a sense in which this is the foundational principle to Roman Catholic theology, isn't it? You do these things, you do a certain list of things, and you'll be just fine. But I don't think this is foreign from Protestant, for Protestants either. 
I think if Catholics may have it ensconced in their theology, we Protestants, a lot of us have it ensconced in our attitudes, in our lives, in our lifestyle. We just do a few things. We think we're good. We've appeased God. We've done what we need to, need to do. We can fake it till we make it. Now, this is not true for the kingdom of heaven. You can't fake it till you make it. And we see this illustrated especially in the parable of the ten virgins. I mentioned some years ago, I mentioned this illustration some years ago. It bears repeating. George Whitfield was called and finally saved after going through a lot of education. He realized he was not indeed born again. He had not been convicted and called. And finally, he broke down and under conviction, the holy conviction of sin, he cried out in repentance and brokenness to God and was saved. And he began to realize this is a, this is a problem. There's a lot of people who are trying to fake it. They, they are growing up in an Anglican home there in England. They're growing up and they think just because they were baptized as a child and around these churchy things that they're going to sort of get swept up. He even said this is, this is true of many pastors, much of the clergy. They had not even been converted. They had not been saved. God had not regenerated their heart. There was no evidence of conviction and repentance and brokenness and true faith and fellowship of Christ. And so his sort of uh, bell that he rung over and over was to quote from the King James Bible what Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And he would go everywhere and preach that sermon, ye must be born again. One day a lady came up to him, she was sort of critical, she said, preacher, why do you always preach, ye must be bor born again? Because, he said, ye must be born again. There's a lot of people that think that they can just sort of trick God into heaven. They can be hypocrites. Another temptation, I think, in light of what Christ had said about His return, about the kingdom, I think another temptation would be laziness. If you have some knowledge of the future, some idea and certainty of the return of Christ, some kind of assurance there, I think, I think a big temptation would be laziness. If God's in control, if God's coming back, if all of this is determined, if God is completely sovereign over this whole thing, I'm just going to sit back. God's, it, God's sovereign. I'm going to sit back and let Him do His thing. I don't have to worry about anything. This is the false philosophy of determinism or hyper-Calvinism. Why do anything if God is sovereign, if God is in charge? Why do anything at all if God is always going to carry out His sovereign will? I've never met a genuine hyper-Calvinist, but I've met a lot of people, Calvinists and Arminians alike, who live like a hyper-Calvinist. They don't pray. They don't evangelize. They don't make disciples. There's no fasting. There's no effort to grow. There's no desire. There's no reading of their Bible. They, they live lazy lives like you would see in someone who's a determinist or a hyper-Calvinist. I think the whole pur purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of what Jesus did was simply to get them to heaven, so why try anything now? It's not about transformation. It's not about living a life abandoned to Christ here. Why not just wait until I go to heaven? The sin of laziness. Another temptation I think we might face as we think about the end times and what Christ has said about His return is something you might call lovelessness or perhaps selfishness in that sense. I think people might be tempted, knowing of God's rule, knowing of the hardship they may face, 
simply to live a life that stores up for themselves. It's just a self-focused life. Maybe they're not a hedonist and maybe they pat themselves on the back that they're not indulging some, uh, some wicked desires, but they're constantly focused on storing things up for themselves, on building bigger barns, so to speak. Blessing yourself as much as you can, knowing that hard times are coming. And the key indicator that this is the way in which you live is that you don't show any love or care for those going through hardship. This, of course, is illustrated in the sheep and the goats. There's no charity, there's no love, there's no giving to those who are facing difficulty. You spend all your resources on yourself, not on others. Well, like I said, Jesus is not just giving them abstract future details. He's making application. He's addressing all of these and other temptations. In light of what He said, He knew they may be tempted to respond poorly. He knew that there may be some temptations that would arise in their hearts based upon the return of Christ, based upon His promises. Perhaps it would be the, the sin of lovelessness or selfishness or laziness or hypocrisy or hedonism. And that's what these four parables are intended to combat. He gives these four parables out of a sense of application, relevance in terms of our spiritual need, not simply what we want to hear from Him. And we live in this era of already, but not yet. Christ's return is already imminent, but He's not yet come. We live with our spirits, our souls that have already been regenerated, already been redeemed, but our bodies have not yet been redeemed. We live in a time when we have already been adopted, already experienced full and familial fellowship with God and with other people. We already know the joy, but we've not experienced these things in their full, glorious expression. So how then should we live? Now let's look at these four parables. The first one I read... The one we're looking at today is the parable of the householder. Well, as it teaches, I mentioned it already, it teaches us to, number one, pursue integrity. Pursue integrity. I mentioned in passing earlier that uh, slavery in that day was much broader, a much broader concept than what we think of in our day. Slavery today, and even going back a few hundred years here in Hawaii and America, it's atrocious. All 100% is atrocious. Human ownership is detestable. It's horrifying. It's the expression of the worst kinds of uh, man's depravity, what we humans have done to one another, do to one another in terms of torture and death, truly horrendous, and it's all expressed in the institution of slavery as we think about it. In that first century, though, there were, though there were millions who were treated like that, and there was that kind of slavery that existed in that day, you can find all those horrifying examples. But the idea of slavery was also much bigger than that. Like I said, it also might be something we might categorize as internship or residency or even sometimes, and we'll even see it illustrated in the reward that the master gives, sometimes even a, sort of a CFO position of a giant estate. There were slaves in that day who were highly educated, slaves who were involved in politics, slaves who were doctors and actors and orators and renowned philosophers. It was possible, in fact, to flee your, free yourself from slavery. And if you had the desire and loved your master and he provided you in such a way, it was also possible to bond yourself to your master permanently. 
In fact, that is the kind of word that's used here. This is talking about a bond slave, someone who has freely chosen to bind himself with his master. Now, that's the kind of slave that Jesus is talking about here in our passage. Why most translations, in fact, your translations may say servant rather than slave because that's more in line with how we use the word servant today rather than the word slave. This employee was not a galley slave, abused and mistreated. This is a doulos here. Clearly, he's valued, he's capable. He has freely bonded with his master, and his master have given, given him some level of authority over his belongings. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? The servant is managing the master's household. He's managing the master's business interests. You get the idea. He's managing even perhaps other servants, perhaps even managing the eating of the master's own family. He may be in charge of the, of the food provisions, which would include providing for the master's own family. And Jesus asked, who then is this faithful and wise? He is pistos. He is faithful. He is true to who he is as a servant. And as such, he's here to serve his master. He is faithful to his calling. His position is not to glorify himself, not serve himself. His position is he is called to serve the master and serve the needs of the master, and he finds great joy in doing so. Wise, phronomos, it means he's not just book smart. He's putting these commands, he's putting the will of the master into action. He knows how to synthesize truth, the truth that the master has given him, and he knows how to put it into action in his life. He is faithful and he is wise. Well, these two ideas, faithful and wise, combined, is here, here's where we get the idea of integrity. Integrity is being and doing the right thing when no one is watching. Let me just say this, integrity is not simply being true to who you are. Why is that not integrity? Because who you are is a mixed up mess of sin and redemption and good desires and terrible desires and you don't want to be true to who you are, you want to be true to who you are called to be, right? Now this servant was true to who he was called to be. He was called to be faithful, he was called to be wise, and he was faithful and wise to apply this truth to him, him his life. And what a wonderful illustration gives here. This man was blessed, he was faithful, he was wise, he enjoyed. And this is a great illustration even when we think about our own calling as children of God, the kind of blessings that we enjoy. Think about our calling. I wrote down some things. We're, we are called in the Bible as children of God. We are called, in fact, that, God's children. All who believe in Him are called children of God. Are you faithful to that calling? A child of God? How do you know? Action, wisdom. You seek to reflect the person of God in the world. We're to be like Him, talk like Him, respond like Him, live like Him, love like Him. Faithful and wise, you see. Even though he, the master, is not physically here with us, we pursue these things. It's a life of integrity. The Bible also calls us the bride of Christ. We are his betrothed, awaiting that final day of union and glory forever. We are called to be his bride. We're called to be faithful to that and wise to that. And that again, that brings up that question. Are we 
faithful to that as a bride of Christ? Are we not violating our covenant to Him, showing integrity, striving to be faithful and wise? The Bible also calls us the body of Christ, meaning the church. It means we unite together with all these different talents and gifts and personalities and objectives, and we come together in unity, and we work, and we strive together in symbiosis, complementing one another all for Christ's glory in the church. We're to be faithful to Him, faithful to that calling with prudence and wisdom. We put that into action. We live and work. One of the reasons that we have a little bit more stringent membership process is because we don't want people to just show up and not do anything. We want you to be a part. We want you to be a faithful part of the body of Christ. You have something that God has gifted you with. We want those gifts in action here in the church. It's part of integrity, part of being true to your calling. The Bible says we're ambassadors. That's our job. It's our calling to be ambassadors, to represent the king of the eternal kingdom on this passing kingdom of the world, this temporary world. We're sent with a message. Be reconciled to God. And we should be faithful to that identity. Be wisely putting that in action, calling people to be reconciled to God, pointing them to the Christ who was crucified, resurrected, and who is one day returning. Well, I could go on. Pastors say that when they run out of stuff to say. I could go on. We could go on. The Bible calls us many things, calls us light and salt, calls us examples to a lost world, calls us the good on earth, calls us a royal priesthood, calls us chosen ones, calls us the good seed, the good soil, the good servants, calls us sons of day, sons of light, counselors of peace, saints, brethren, heirs, the righteous, the godly, partakers of that heavenly calling. What is it to be faithful to this calling? What is it to show integrity, as this first servant did, to his calling? This servant, his objective was to have integrity. It was to be faithful to his calling. It was to be wise carrying out and in action, carrying out those things that he was called to do, not just in his mind and his heart, but in his actions and his words. That master had called him for a purpose, and that servant wisely implemented all the things that he was called to do and be planned these things out. He executed. People didn't have to worry about the food. He made sure they were fed and cared for and provided. This is the first servant. He's all positive. And so the first thing that Jesus notes here is that blessing, the blessing of integrity. If you're writing notes, write that down. A, the blessing of integrity. You see that in verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Blessed is that servant. Think of all the blessing. I I think one blessing that we forget is what I sometimes call the blessing of mutuality, meaning when we do what we are called to do, when we are what we are called to be, not only do we receive blessing, but God receives glory. We're called to be, we were made to worship God. And so not only are we blessed, God is blessed by that glory. 
If we're called to worship God, if we're designed as human beings, if we're designed in our, in our minds and our bodies and our hearts to, to bring glory to God, to worship God in our lives, not just on Sunday morning, but to live lives out of, of worship, guess what? That's where we're going to find our greatest satisfaction and contentment in glorifying and worshiping God. You know, that's exactly what this servant experienced. The blessing this servant experienced was the, the, the blessing of mutuality. He was doing exactly what he was called to do. He was being exactly what he was called to be. This man of integrity who lived up to that calling and lived it out. And not only did the master receive confidence and joy and glory because the servant was carrying out what he was called to do, but that servant also found great satisfaction and joy himself. There's also a blessing that this servant here experiences. It's this blessing of value. When you are doing what God has commanded in the kingdom, you're not just dead weight in the kingdom, right? This servant wasn't just in the way. People had to sort of work around him. You guys have always worked. I'm sure you've worked with someone like that. Hopefully it's not you. If you don't know who it is at work who's dead weight, it's probably you. You've worked with someone who's like that, right? And everyone sort of has to work around the guy or the girl. Usually guy. Everyone has to work around him. Everyone has to kind of schedule and move things around him. And, and people scratch their head and go home and talk to their spouses about, why can't we just fire that guy? He's useless. Doesn't do anything. He's just dead weight. Now, don't let your minds run away. You're tempted to think of certain people right now and you're judging them. Don't do that. I wasn't intending for you to do that. Some people look at this servant, and, and, and clearly he wasn't at the top at the beginning of the parable, at the beginning of the first couple sentences of the parable. He was uh, perhaps in the kitchen, maybe the cook. Maybe that's all he was. He was just a cook. He could have been a little bit more than that, managing some things. But either way, even if he was a cook, he was absolutely vital to the master's plan here. The master needed him. The master was using him. The master, yes, could have hired somebody else, could have brought in a different slave, could have done it some other way. But this man, because he was obeying, because he had integrity and being tr was true to who he was and carried out those commands, that man found great value and great purpose. He also had the blessing of community. I think we see here him giving the food to all these people. There's great joy. By following the master's commands, he placed himself in, inside this local group of people who were living under the, the master's command, the master's area, the community of other people, perhaps other servants, other people who were carrying out the same things, doing things alongside him, working with him, other people who sought to honor the master. And so now he's not alone in all this. So you have the blessing of community, the blessing of value, the blessing of mutuality. If you do this, if you live a life, if you pursue integrity, you have all these blessings and more. You're finding purpose in God. You're finding purpose in giving God the glory, and you get this great joy, this great contentment, and you get this whole community of people who are trying to do the same thing. You're joining together and helping one another. What an immense blessing, layer upon layer, layer of blessing and joy and fulfillment. This parable is an illustration of that reality. 
A believer who's obedient, a believer who is someone who pursues integrity, who understands their calling, who, who, who understands who they are called to be and then pursues it with faithfulness. And Jesus points out that kind of servant is a servant who receives immense, profound blessing, community, value, mutuality, God being glorified in you, you finding great satisfaction. You can think of any of these blessings and apply them to any command that God gives, the command to evangelize, to make disciples. You can find immense satisfaction and joy when you do that. You bring God glory. You find value. God using you in His kingdom. Does He need you? No, I'm sure He could save anybody He wants and use other people. He can make a donkey speak. When you obey, you find this joy of being a part of His kingdom. You find the joy of mutuality and community and being a part of God's magnificent plan. Jesus said in this parable, the master would, quote, set him over all his possessions. Not only would this man receive these blessings, but God would actually expand his responsibilities all these other blessings were added to because now the master has given him more blessings. And, of course, this applies to us. The more responsible we are, the more we show integrity, the more God blesses us. And the more God blesses us, the more we want to show integrity. And the more we show integrity, the more God blesses us. You see this wonderful, beautiful cycle of blessing. Again, the blessing of obedience here in this context begins with being who you are called to be and then carrying it out in wisdom, it's integrity. Pursuing integrity is so great, so magnificent. When you fail in these things, when you fail in integrity, you start to lose your purpose. You start to lose blessing. You start to lose joy. You start to lose identity. You lose contentment. You're not true to who you are or what you've called to be. And those blessings start to slide away. Worse than that, when you fail in terms of integrity, you have that doubt in the back of your mind that this is maybe revealing the fact that you were not called in the first place. I mean, if there's no real desire, no passion for integrity, no passion to live up to the calling with which God has called us, maybe it's because you're not even called. You're not a, quote, wise and faithful servant from the start. John said in 1 John 3, beginning of verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A genuine believer loves integrity pursues it even when no one's watching. A false believer eventually reveals his lack of integrity by his rebellion that he never was genuine to begin with. Earlier in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, familiar passage, they went out from us, but they not, were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain they all are not of us. Now look at verse 48, Matthew 24. 
This is what's happening with a wicked servant. But if that wicked, of course, this is the opposite of faithful and wise. This is the opposite of integrity. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's going on here? Well, Jesus showed us the blessing of integrity. Here with a bad servant, he illustrated number two, or B, the curse of corruption. Now, Jesus did something here in the last part of this parable. He's done this before. We've seen this as he uh, gives us parables before. We read through a parable, and he's talking sort of in the, in the parabolic. He's giving the illustration, and, and before you know it, now he's talking reality. He sort of slides into reality, and that's precisely what happens in this parable. It starts out in the parabolic, talking about this unwise or this wicked servant, sort of an imaginary story. It's a word picture. And then he gets to the end, and clearly he's talking about a literal hell. He's already starting to apply this to their hearts and their lives. The punishment here is clearly hell. The punishment of being cut asunder, paired with the hypocrites, sent to the abyss. This is clearly talking about hell. Think back to all those wonderful blessings of the servant who pursues integrity. Blessings enjoyed by anybody who pursues integrity, mutuality, God getting the glory, you being the worshiper. Someone obeys it, glorifies God. What a blessing, the blessing of value, the blessing of community, all of this blessing that's happening. This wicked servant says, I don't want any of that. I could care less about all that. He sacrificed all of that for some indolent, selfish, temporary power. It seems like that's what he's pursuing right here, right? He's, he's beating other servants. So perhaps he has some level of authority or maybe he's just a bully. He's indolent. He's angry. He's selfish. Beating other servants. And what we find is not only did he sacrifice those immediate blessings, he sacrifices that ultimate blessing. I want to point something out here and then we'll be finished. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of two ways. We have it in our statement of faith. If you take the time, most people don't read the statement of faith unless they're thinking about joining a church. Maybe you read it on your way in. But our statement of faith has this doctrine, this idea, a doctrine of two ways. Article 15, statement of faith, we believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. That such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of a God, are truly righteous in His esteem, while all such as continue in impenitence and unbelief are in His sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds in among men both in and after death. You see, it all humanity can be divided in two groups, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are not righteous in of themselves. They have to be made righteous by God, and God must come to their hearts and regenerate them, and they must cry out and 
repent and have faith in Christ. They must be made righteous through regeneration and subsequent justification. They start out wicked in this camp, but God makes them righteous. It's a pure act of God's grace. The wicked remain wicked. The wicked remain wicked even when they can produce some surface righteousness, as all humans can do. All humans can produce some surface righteousness. Hitler could produce surface righteousness. John Wayne Gacy could produce surface righteousness. These are wicked, wicked people. And they can do some things that look good, that seem moral. And in the end, they are proven just like this wicked servant. They live a selfish life. And this is true for all the wicked. They never truly trust Christ. They never truly repent of their sin. They never have a sense of genuine spirit-given desires to have true integrity, to be who God has called them to be. And so they're revealed in the end. Death or the return of Christ will come to them. And they'll be shocked and surprised. It'll be sudden. They'll be eternally judged, the righteous and the wicked. Every one of these parables Jesus gives us here gives us this doctrine. Here you have the righteous servant and the wicked servant, the righteous virgins and the wicked virgins, the righteous stewards and the wicked steward, and finally the righteous sheep versus the wicked goats. How do you know which group you're in? The first question is, do you believe? First of all, do you believe in Christ, who He is, what He's done, His life, the cross, resurrection? And two, do you follow Him? Do you repent? Do you want to identify with Him? Do you pursue integrity, so to speak, so to say? If you do that, you can have assurance that you are the righteous servant. Even if you fail at times, you know you can dust yourself off and continue to pursue this life of integrity, a life truly of blessing, even in the midst of a hard, tough world, you can find great blessing. If not, no matter how much false morality you can produce, no matter how much everyone else looks at you and says, oh, that's a servant of God or that's a Christian, You'll be joined with the other hypocrites in the end and sent to everlasting torture. Now, Jesus wanted His men to pursue a life of integrity, to pursue the life of a righteous servant. He wanted them to pursue this kind of life that's true to what He had called them to be, carrying out those things wisely as they live their life. And I hope this is what we do. If the Lord tarries, we do all the way to our own death. Let's be found in pursuit of integrity. Let's pray for that right now. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful example of both a good servant and a wicked servant, a servant who pursues a life of integrity, living up to his calling, being true to what you have called him to be, and then living it out, carrying it out wisely in obedience. What joy, what blessing. Lord, we want that. We hate our sin. We despise it. We we want to run from it. We repent of it. Lord, help us be people who are people of integrity. 
Lord, I pray for those who may not know you. We pray that you would open their eyes, that they are still in that camp, that camp of wicked servants. Oh, they may have deceived many people. Maybe they've deceived their own heart. Lord, make them know right now with full conviction. Help them know that they are not truly born again. Open their eyes, call them to repentance and faith, and then give them the assurance of salvation that as they believe in you and pursue this life of integrity, they have the confidence that they are children of God and a wise and faithful servant. Lord, help us then as we, those of us who are believers, help us continue to live these lives, lives in pursuit of integrity. Help us in this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, stand with me. We'll have a benediction. Now may we go, encouraged by the joy and blessing it is to pursue a life of integrity. The Lord be with us and bless us and keep us in our pursuit of integrity. Amen.